opportunity to study your word. I pray you'll give us the insight that we need to grasp it. In your name, amen. Well, we're talking about religious people who are so religious they think they're good with God on their own merits. So as it's been said, old Pharisees never die, they just multiply. I mean, we know from the time of this or study till today that's still going on. Mark Twain said, having spent considerable time with good people, I can understand why Jesus liked to be with tax collectors and sinners. And then somebody wrote a cartoon of a Pharisee witnessing saying, have you heard of the 4,973 spiritual laws? You know, the old track. Okay. Was for spiritual laws. And it's often difficult to preach to a religious audience, someone put. To paraphrase Matthew 22, 14, many are cold and a few are frozen. So that seems to be the case with Paul's audience in this letter today. As we studied last time in chapter 9, we learned that God was indeed, had indeed fulfilled his word to Israel. There has always been an elect remnant who believed the Lord, and starting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And having presented the truth of God's sovereign election that we saw in chapter 9, we will see here in chapter 10 the truth of human responsibility. The fact that national Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah is not because of sovereign election. It is because of their unbelief. Paul closes out chapter 9 and begins chapter 10 by explaining the reason for their unbelief. As Paul went around the Roman Empire presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ, he found many Gentiles who were open to the message, while his own kinsmen were close to the message. This was because the Jewish people sought a righteousness by attempting to keep the law. In their own minds, they really thought they were keeping the law, and they thought their good works is what was making them righteous and acceptable to a holy God. But God's way has always been that the only way to be declared righteous before him is by faith, not human works. We saw that clearly in the life of Abraham in chapter 4. Like many people today who believe they must earn their way to heaven by keeping a religious code or their denomination's set of rules, Um, so the Jewish people sought to earn righteousness, and they stumbled then over the gospel of grace when Jesus came. They didn't need a savior from their sin because they thought they were good. They were already upright and religious in their own eyes. And that's why they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Romans 9, chapter 32, verses 32 and 3 is how that chapter ends. I didn't touch on it last week. So as is true for so many religious people in our day, Pride causes them to think that they are in good standing with God for all the wonderful things they do. This is a contrast then to people who know they are wicked and vile sinners and they recognize they have an incredible spiritual need. When God placed Jesus on the path of Israel, they stumbled over him thinking they had no need for a savior when they are already so righteous By keeping the law. So that brings us to chapter 10, where Paul addresses Israel now in the present. Last week we saw Israel in the past. So many in Christendom today have the attitude that, you know what, Israel lost their opportunity to believe uh, as a nation when they rejected Jesus. Therefore, we should just forget about them and God's done with them because now his work is only to do with the church. The nation of Israel is thought uh, to be replaced by the church. But we do not see that in Paul's perspective. 
towards his kinsman Israel. He tells us in verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, his kinsmen, is for their salvation. Paul's heart, as we saw last week as well, was burdened and broken for his people. And in spite of their unbelief in Christ, he longed for them to be saved. This burden led him to pray for Israel. And even though Paul taught the truth of sovereign election, that never ever diminished or weakened his prayer life. He saw no inconsistency in praying with urgency and with great passion for God to work in the heart of lost sinners, while yet believing that God will save those whom he has elected to save. More specifically, Paul prayed for the hearts of his Jewish people to be saved. We should never ignore or neglect sharing the gospel with Jewish people. We should have the same attitude Paul had and be diligent to ask God to save Jewish people and, of course, Gentile people alike. I mentioned to the study last night at the end, but I'll do it now. I mean, for many of you, you, you your doctors, whatever, that's the usual place. You run across Jewish acquaintances, sometimes a neighbor, an acquaintance, a friend. And there are great tools in sharing the gospel with them that you can avail yourself to. And just as a word to the wise, you never say Jesus Christ. Immediately, they will have a mindset that is erroneous because to them, when you say that, that is when Jewish people were herded into synagogues and burned alive in the name of Jesus Christ because they are Christ killers. And all the persecution that went on for so many centuries has have been done in the name of Christ. So there are certain words you just don't need to say. Jesus Messiah, Jesus the Lord, and so on. Well, there is a remnant, as we know, of Jewish people that God is saving, and he uses the prayers of people and the power of his word to answer those prayers. Paul risked his life. He ended up in chains, yet he continued to preach the gospel because he knew that the elect needed to hear the gospel, and faith would come to those who heard the truth proclaimed to them. Like Paul, we are to pray for the salvation of Jewish people that cross our path, and declare to them a love, in a loving way about their Messiah who offers salvation. And I think a great starting point is just say, I'm so grateful to you for your people because they are the one that brought the Messiah that I've trusted and know my sins are forgiven. As I said last time, I'm indebted to the book God's Plan for Israel and presenting this message to you. So the next section takes a closer look at Israel's responsibility. And we have seen their past, as I mentioned last week, and now at the present. In verse 2, we read, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So Paul is writing about the Jewish people in his day, whose entire lives were centered around their faith. I mean, everything they did, from eating to washing to worship, everything was about keeping a religious code. It was indeed this, uh, this very intense zeal that caused the once Pharisee Saul, before his conversion to Paul, to kill and persecute Christians. He had incredible zeal. He thought he was doing this for God. He thought he was doing this for Israel. But he had lacked the knowledge. And they were certainly familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, and yet the Jewish people completely missed the point of the law. They came to believe that it was their own righteousness that earned God's favor. And their zeal to do good works was their attempt to be right with God. The rabbis wrote commentaries, as you know, on what they thought the Hebrew scriptures said. And so on top of all the law, 
then there was thousands of things added on top of that of do's and don'ts. So kosher homes mean two sets of dishes to separate meat from dairy. Keeping the Sabbath means you can't push an elevator button because that is some rabbis declared as work. So as you know, if you visit Israel and you're there on the Sabbath, no matter what elevator you get in, it's stopping on every floor because you can't push the button. And even though there was, and still with many, this great zeal into minute detail like that, what is lacking, though, is personal righteousness. There came to be a willful ignorance because of their rejection of God's plan for salvation. So they ignored the truth of the very scriptures they claimed that they were living by. And every time there was an animal sacrifice, think about that, at the temple, it was a reminder of the truth that fellowship with God is only possible with a payment for sin, a blood payment for sin, not by bringing zealous good works. How would you bring that to the altar? The only way for atonement for sins is clear from Leviticus 17, 11. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus was the Lamb of God, and he died like a sheep led to the slaughter. And all of this was in the Hebrew Scriptures. All of this was presented to them throughout the, the verses of the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a sheep that was silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. Well, with all of their zeal for the law, their, willing, their willful ignorance of the scriptures, Paul says in verse 4, for Christ is the end or the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So with the most amazing good news, the truth here is declared that because of Jesus, everyone can stop trying to attain righteousness. It's impossible anyway. But the law reveals how unrighteous we truly are and showing us that we are all broken, we've all broken every one of God's holy standards. And only it's when we see our sin and our guilt, that's the only time we see our great need and come seeking him for righteousness that we don't have. I love the picture of the great exchange, you all know. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The remnant of Jewish believers submitted to God's plan when they trusted him to give them righteousness when they put their faith in Jesus as their promised Messiah. But the nation as a whole, led by their spiritual leaders, refused this message, and they would not let go of their zeal to establish their own righteousness. That makes salvation all about a person trying to earn righteousness rather than God getting the glory for what he has graciously done and providing it for lost sinful people. Verse 5, for Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. And Paul goes in to take verse uh, from Leviticus 18.5 to prove that righteousness cannot be attained by keeping the law since the law demands perfect obedience. The same truth you saw in your lesson today from John's James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point is guilty of it all. So any person who thinks they can go to heaven because they feel they observe the law, they fail to realize there's no room for error. It is 100% perfect obedience all of the time because the law is a single unit. So obviously it's completely impossible to do. The truth that Israel as a nation was spiritually in a lost state was not God's fault. He sent their promised Messiah to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He came to his own and his own received him not. 
The truth is seen throughout the Hebrew scriptures. It makes it clear that salvation, forgiveness of sins, is only possible by the innocent sacrifice and blood being shed for guilty sinners who break the law. Yet Jewish people in Paul's day rejected that final substitute for sin, which was pictured throughout the whole sacrificial system. It was their everyday life. Therefore, it is Israel who is responsible then for their unbelief. God gave the provision of salvation to his covenant people, and they refused it. Was salvation really, though, in their reach? Was it possible for the nation to believe, or did sovereign election make it impossible? Well, we see in verses 6 through 13, as now he goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14, where God made it clear that knowledge of him is accessible. This commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make it, us hear it, that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, well, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. But the word is very near you, in your mouth, in your heart, that you may observe it. No one has to do the impossible in order to try and learn what the will of God is. You don't have to search for something that is never attainable. Verses 6 through 8, But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Paul applies the language as seen in Deuteronomy 30 to Christ. He's trying to point out that righteousness by faith does not require anyone to scale the heavens to bring Christ down or go into Hades to raise him from the dead. Obviously, both of these are impossible. The message of the gospel, though, is not far away. It's not beyond reach. It is near. It's actually in your mouth and heart. When you think about it, at the time that Paul was writing this letter, Paul had gone to community after community, city after city, went in the synagogues first, proclaimed the truth about Jesus. The world said he was turning the place upside down with this message across the Roman Empire. It's not God's fault that Israel refused to believe what they heard. Salvation by faith was within their grasp. And that's not the experience of those who believe keeping the law will save them. People who think, I have to do, stay in this religion, stay in this denomination, do the 50 things that I'm supposed to do, you never know if it's enough. They leave with doubts, never knowing if I should have done one more thing. I remember seeing overseas a, uh, a holy place where people crawled up on their kneecaps, uh, many flights of stairs, and they were told their sins were washed away when they reached the top. And it's so sad because, you know, that, but, that, but still there would be no peace because the moment you walked out from the steps and you got annoyed or whatever, then you're back to square one. It's never enough. The message of salvation is available to anyone to have this saving faith. We read in verse 9 that because you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. <clears throat> in order to be saved from the penalty of sin, one must trust that Jesus rose from the dead. Because it's the resurrection that confirmed the person and work of Jesus Christ. So when a person puts their faith in his resurrection, it means that they have a heart that's trusted 
the God-man, for the penalty he paid for their sins. When we read about confession with our mouth and faith in our hearts, we need to be careful we don't misunderstand what Paul is saying here. He's not teaching that public confession has to be made before a person can be saved. He mentions confessions before belief only because that's the order that Moses had mentioned it in. The only requirement for salvation is faith in Christ, and those who have true faith will express that faith by confessing it with their mouth. If someone in their heart has trusted Christ, they will express that faith with their mouth because out of the mouth is what is in our heart. That's what Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, as Moses had told the people of Israel that the will of God was not beyond their reach, so Paul tells us that salvation for Israel is not impossible. Salvation has always been by faith alone. In verse 11, Paul quotes Isaiah 28. Verse 16, in order to support what he just said, he says, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. The truth is, all Jewish people need to do is have, to have eternal life is to trust the Messiah who came to them. And this invitation to trust him extends to all Israel and thank the Lord, it went beyond Israel to Gentiles like us. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the open invitation to all people. Righteousness is available from the Lord to all who call on the name of the Lord. Having just written about God's divine sovereignty and election in chapter 9, Here we are in chapter 10, and Paul says the invitation to come to Christ is open to all Jews and Gentiles. And this is why uh, why we are to do all we can to share this message with everyone when they cross our path. We are the ones to sow the seed of God's word, sharing the truth of the gospel to anyone who will listen. That is our responsibility. And I know I struggle with faithfulness and being a witness and having the courage to speak up when I should. And I think sometimes it's a wrong mindset. It's not a duty. It's, it's a privilege that we could actually be a part of the salvation process by just planting a seed of truth in someone's heart or mind in a brief conversation. And you know, Scripture tells us there's plants, seeds planted, planted, others come along, water, water, and then God gives the increase. Just to be a part of that process, what an amazing opportunity and joy he gives to us. Everyone is invited here in this verse to come to Christ. Only the elect will come, but we don't know who they are, and God is drawing them to himself. Like I said last time, we don't understand how these two doctrines work together, but God does, and it works out perfectly in his mind. God is never to be blamed for people refusing to come. Uh, He has made it possible to be saved, and he calls all to come to him in faith. If you desire salvation, then you can come to him, you know, right where you're sitting in your seat. And he is indeed near. When people are listening and hearing the word, it is God working in their hearts. So never ignore or try to silence what's going on in your heart when you're being drawn to him. Then salvation has been proclaimed in verses 14 through 21. As we grow older, we tend to have a harder time hearing. But there are those people who have had a hard time hearing since they were toddlers. And maybe you have parented one of those. It isn't a physical problem with their ear. No, rather it's a failure to pay attention and listen to what is being said. We call these people hard of listening. 
In a similar way, the nation of Israel that Paul writes about had been told the gospel message, but they claimed they didn't hear it. They didn't think they were responsible then for unbelief, even though countless people tried to proclaim the way of salvation to them. But Paul makes it clear that they were responsible, therefore they were condemned. They are condemned for their unbelief. So he goes through some steps here in verses 14 through 15, asking a number of questions in order to show that they had the opportunity to call on Christ but had refused. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? <clears throat> and how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as this is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Before anyone can call on Christ, they must first believe that he is, that he exists, and that calling on him is the right thing to do. It has to be an attitude of having confidence in Christ in a person's heart before they seek the Lord for salvation. And no one can believe in Christ and then call on him unless they first heard about him. And no one can hear the gospel until it's proclaimed. And how can anyone hear unless there is a preacher or an individual like you and me telling them? Paul is driving home the truth that no one can call upon Christ unless they believe in the truth about him. And no one can believe that truth about him unless they first hear that truth. And no one can hear that message unless someone has proclaimed it. So in order for people to hear the gospel message, heralds must be sent. So Paul concludes this question by asking, how shall they preach except they be sent? He wants his readers to conclude that no one can call on the Lord unless God initiates that salvation process by sending messengers to proclaim the gospel. If messengers were never sent by God to the Jewish people, then Israel can legitimate, cannot legitimately be blamed for not believing. But if God did indeed send gospel witness to Israel, then the nation is responsible for the refusal to call upon him for salvation. Then Paul quotes from Isaiah 52, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good tidings. In the last days of Israel's captivity in Babylon, messengers have been sent and brought back to Jerusalem to bring good news that the captivity was about to be over. And Isaiah called the feet of those messengers as beautiful because of the news that they were delivering. And so just as messengers in Old Testament times brought good news to Israel about the end of their captivity, so messengers in the New Testament times were sent to Israel and they too announced good news that their Messiah had come and salvation was available through him. So the Jewish people of Paul's day had every opportunity to hear the gospel. Jesus came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There was a remnant of Jewish people who did indeed believe. And from the time of the book of Acts, uh, the witnesses went out from Israel and eventually to Gentiles as well. That first church that formed on the day of Pentecost was 3,000 Jewish people responding to the message of the gospel Peter preached. God made sure Israel had the good news. The gospel was proclaimed to them. They, they were hearing it in their own languages. Such cannot be said, though, today for the Jewish people in our world. The majority of people uh, know nothing about the gospel message. They only have mental association with persecution done in the name of Jesus Christ. They don't own a New Testament. They've never read an Old Testament, most of them. They don't tune into Christian radio. They don't stop by and visit a church on a Sunday. They don't watch Christian TV or read Christian books. Uh, we can ask Paul's question then, how will they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent? 
the reality is that we must be the ones to tell them about Jesus. And obviously, this is the need for all people to hear the truth about him. But we don't want to neglect the Jewish people when we reach out to the lost world. My husband is Jewish and raised in the typical American Jewish home. He knew religious tradition, did the bar mitzvah, go on the high holy days to synagogue, but knew nothing about how your sins would be forgiven or that God, you could know him. No one ever spoke to him or his family in all his years growing up, never heard the message of the gospel. It wasn't until he went to college and a young man who just became a believer in Jesus himself, a Gentile, started talking to him about the gospel. And of course, he, had to, he made excuses. Well, I can't believe that. I'm Jewish. That, that's not for Jewish people. But he decided to buy a Bible and read it so he could articulate why he was rejecting Jesus to his friend. But God used the word to draw him to himself. And along with the witness of this newly, brand new believer, uh, Gentile friend, the Lord used him and my husband's life. Our feet may not be too pretty, especially as they get older and spread out in calluses, but they are a picture of beauty when our feet take us to places where we herald the truth about Jesus and share that message of hope and forgiveness to your Jewish doctor, neighbors, and friends, and anyone else God brings across your life. Verses 16 and 17, Israel rejected the gospel, and even though the nation had that opportunity to respond to Christ, they rejected the offer of salvation. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So instead of seeing the messenger's feet as beautiful, um, as people brought them the truth about Jesus being their Messiah, they attacked the messengers and they rejected what they said. This quote was from Isaiah 700 years before Jesus ever came. He predicted the nation would not believe the report, and he was right. Only a small remnant believed it. The Jewish people of Paul's day did have the opportunity, as I've said, to hear the gospel, but they ended up opposing it. And they are responsible, therefore, for their unbelief. So Paul finishes his argument by saying, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. There were no excuses. Israel had heard, but they were hard of listening. Paul has uh, gone to great lengths to prove his point by using the Hebrew scriptures, but he still anticipates Jewish unbelievers would have objections by saying, well, Israel, for saying Israel is guilty for their unbelief. So first objection is seen in verse 18, but I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into the earth and, and their words to the ends of the world. Paul quotes here from Psalm 19.4 affirming that just as the heavens declare the glory of God, so the gospel witness declared salvation in Christ to the Jewish people. If they did not respond to Jesus, it was not for a lack of opportunity to hear the truth. Then the second objection Paul imagines someone might say, making an excuse for Israel's unbelief. Verse 19, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation, by a nation without understanding will I anger you. So did the Jewish leaders and the people reject Jesus because they didn't know what he was saying? Did Jesus make the gospel so hard for them to understand? Again here, Paul quotes from Moses. God's blessing to the Gentiles who would believe in him would make his chosen people jealous and angry. And 1,500 years before Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, Moses declared that the salvation message would reach Gentiles as well as Jews. And I am so thankful for that. 
Then Paul quotes again from Isaiah in verse 20. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. It is clear from both Moses and Isaiah that it was foretold that Gentiles would believe in the Jewish Messiah. Those who had no background, no biblical understanding. They didn't know about the law. They didn't know about the forefathers. They didn't know about the promises. They didn't seek after God. But these individuals, there would be many who would comprehend the message and the gospel, the good news of Jesus. If even blind pagans can understand the simple truth of the gospel then the truth about Israel's unbelief cannot be due to a lack of understanding about the message. So it was not a lack of hearing. It's not a lack of understanding the truth about Jesus. Rather, this rejection by Israel has to do with stubborn disobedience. So Paul closes the chapter by quoting Isaiah again in verse 60, um, Isaiah 65 two. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. The nations spurned God's love for them. And yet in spite of her being a stubborn people, God continues to stretch out his hand. He continues to invite Israel and individuals, the remnant, to come to him. And someday, someday the Jewish nation as a whole will accept that invitation when they look on him whom they've pierced and they mourn for him like one mourns for an only son. That's a day in the future. And we'll see this next week in chapter 11. So today he invites all to call on him for salvation. You know, this is the reason we celebrate Christmas, the birth of Christ coming into the world. This is why we're going to celebrate Easter a week from Sunday that he rose from the dead. God became man. He grew up to die in the place of sinners like us. So those who trust him will have his righteousness given to them and no forgiveness of sins, past, present, and future. His coming changes the eternal destiny of every person who humbles themselves and sees their sinful condition and cries out to him for forgiveness. That is why we have reason to celebrate Easter. None of us here have any excuse, do we? We have the truth proclaimed to us through the book of Romans we've been studying. Israel's not alone, though, in being stubborn and disobedient or just plain indifferent. Religious people of every era, in every country of the world, they want to depend on themselves. They want to depend on the fact that I do this and this and this, and I took this and I did this, and I've made this trip and I've done these things, therefore I am right with God. And that way, they get all the credit for all the great things they've done. But that is not how salvation works. So the question is, will you use your feet to take you to places to herald the truth of the gospel? Whether you're in a doctor's office, a grocery store line, you know, people can talk about the weather so easily, you know, strike up a conversation. Just learning um, ways to go into a statement about the Lord. I'm so thankful, especially, you know, the war going on uh, overseas and all that's going on with COVID. Just we have opportunity to open our mouths and, and bring a message of hope, even if it's just for a minute. I pray that we would all have a greater boldness to be like Paul and using casual conversations uh, when God brings people across our path. My prayer is that no one here would leave our study today still dead in your own sins and still thinking you're good enough to be right with God. The good news has been told to you. Make sure your own heart embraces the message. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these chapters 9, 10, and 11, Lord. They're 
They're critical to understand, Lord. They're critical to our uh, knowledge of your word and your plan. I thank you that you are faithful and that we can trust your word. We can trust every promise that you've ever made because you are faithful to Israel. You are faithful to your church. Lord, I pray that you would give us a holy boldness as we go out from here and our paths cross, casual conversations happen. Lord, help us not to be people who just join in complaining with other people, but to bring um, hope by brief words that we might say in a passing moment, Lord. Pray that we would have a love for Israel, that we would pray for the peace of Jerusalem as we've been commanded to do, and that we would be faithful to be wise in just sharing the gospel in a clear way and a non-offensive way when the Lord brings a Jewish person across our path. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, ladies.